Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host Shane Lee. Today on the show, Jason McCartney, a former Australian rules footballer playing 182 matches in the AFL, 107 for the North Melbourne Football Club. In 2002, he was a victim of the Bali bombing near the Sari Club. He's the current GWS Giants list manager and was awarded a medal of the Order of Australia. And John Cadogan, an Australian media professional, broadcaster, producer and presenter. He now has more than 300,000 subscribers at autoexpert.com.au producing motor vehicle content on YouTube. He describes himself as a former Jedi Knight, survivor of the Battle of Five Ex-Wives and the most hated motoring journalist in Australia. Let's get started. And welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host, Shane Lee. Today on the show, Jason McCartney, former Australian rules footballer, and John Cadogan, the most hated motoring journalist in Australia. Hello, boys. Hello, mate. How are you? Great to be here. Mate, I'm, Jason, I'm really excited to have you. Mate, you're a, um, you're, you're, you're a walking uh, sporting hero. You're very, very much loved in the sporting community. But, John, you describe yourself as the most hated motoring journalist. So we've got yin and yang on the show today. Well, I thought I should go all in. You know, what's the point in being the second most hated anything, right? It didn't always start out that way in my playing career. I think I was uh, hated a lot by the opposition. Then, obviously, after the uh, the incident in 2002, um, it changed the yeah. narrative around me. But before that, yeah, probably loved by our own supporters and hated by a lot more. Well, you started at Collingwood. And well, that's a good start. That's, that's where that, you that, hated. That's where you, where you hated. Yes, yeah. so you had 38 matches there. You then went to Adelaide, 37 matches. You, you probably did describe yourself as a shin boner, wouldn't you, from North Melbourne? Yeah, absolutely. The first yeah. two clubs, Collingwood and Adelaide, were fantastic. Collingwood gave me the opportunity. But I grew up in country Victoria, and there was there was zones uh, probably three year, four years before I got drafted. There were zones, and ours was the Essendon zone. So I was a Mad right. Can Essendon supporter, and. So when I got drafted to Collingwood at the end of 1990, they've just beaten Essendon in the grand final. So I absolutely hated Collingwood. Mates, Collingwood supporters, so <laughs> could not believe it when they were the club that called my name out. They're the only club I didn't speak to. But once again, it was a great opportunity. It took a little bit of getting used to, though. Surely being hated is just a backhanded badge of honour, though, isn't it, in your line of work? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was, uh, I suppose, the players I played against or played on in my position, they were... You know, as a, as a key defender, you're playing on some of the greats and uh, I was never going to be able to cut the mustard with them unless I was um, ruffling some feathers and scragging and, you know, punching. And right, when you walked in here, you blocked out the sun. There was a total <laughs> eclipse and I thought the last thing I'd want is you running towards me with a certain, you know, malicious intent in your eye. Yeah, well, we could get away with a lot more back then. They, unfortunately, the boys, it's a lot different now, but um, yeah, yeah you, you just had to... Uh, yeah, just fight to survive, really. But John, you, you talk about passion. You're, um, you have a, as I said, said at the start, three hundred thousand subscribers at autoexpert.com.au. You talk about passion. There's no more passion than than motor motorheads. Well, cars are a sort of a badge of honour, aren't they? They're like uh, when I grew up. There was the Ford camp and the Holden yeah, camp. And which you, camp were you in? Well, I was in the Holden camp, but yep. Dad was in a Ford camp, so that was right. an interesting dynamic. But, okay. you know, all across the joint, you'd be looking through the holes in the fence and you'd be wondering what, what made the Ford dudes tick. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, yeah. it, was, it was bipolar in a sense. <laughs> and uh, th- that's kind of gone a bit. I don't see kids having the same sort of uh, association with cars, with the exception perhaps of Tesla. Well, Tesla's a bit of a cult. Oh, mate, very, I'm, I'm glad you said that because my seven-year-old son, Thomas, and 
the kids now consume all their media on, on YouTube predominantly, right? Mm. And I don't know what ads they're putting on there, but he and all these kids, all these mates, whenever they see a Tesla, they scream it out in the car when you're driving. It's, it's really off-putting. Like, Tesla, there's a Tesla, Dad. My, uh, my youngest son, so I've got a 16-year-old boy and a 14-year-old yeah. boy, all over it. Tesla, Tesla, Tesla. Tesla. And yeah. it's funny you mentioned that I, I still – I know nothing about car. All I want is – put the fuel in and it yeah. gets me from A to B and yeah. it never breaks down. That's all I need. Yeah. Um, but well, I, I remember that growing up. I remember that growing up, that uh, Holden V Ford. In the that, country in particular, In the country, right? yep, yep. Utes, Absolutely. Utes would have been huge, the muster and all of that sort of thing. Yep, yep. So the area I grew up was a nil, yeah, was farming it? community, halfway between, yeah, nil, halfway between um, Melbourne and Adelaide. So, yeah, it, it was big. I um, think the big evolution, though, with cars is going to be it's taking place now. There's almost this uh, brainwashing going on about electric cars being the harbinger of saving the planet. Mm. And I think that's going to be kind of the the new battle space, if you like, for cars in Australia. Whether or not that's the case, yet to be seen. We do tend to burn a lot of coal in this country and that gets swept under the rug. It does. What, what was your first car, Jase? Oh, would have been a Holden. Okay. Yep, would have been a Holden. Would have John? been a Commodore. What was yours, mate? Mine was a Ford Cortina. It was mum and dad's old car. Right, the old Cortina. They made me sign a loan contract and make repayments and all that stuff and trying to make me responsible. Look what happened. My uh, One of my mates growing up, Jason Jarvis, his name was, he had a, he had a Ford Cortina. His dad's one. He used to burn out to JJ Kelly Park. <laughs> 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 it's the most terrifying thing ever. <laughs> I, I still remember the purchase of my first car. I was playing at Collingwood at the time. Uh, different system. I was drafted when I was 16. So at the end of 1990, went to Melbourne. About four hours away, and uh, so I didn't have a license. So the next next year, when I got the license in the lead up, it's like I found this car. I, like I said, no idea. So dad come down from Melbourne, and yeah, this looked all right, and no problems. And then once again, the money's changed a lot from back then. But I, I had this little sign on bonus that was just sitting there in this yep. bank account. And I was able to go bang Boom. that first car. How wow. is this? But I, I remember my first car. Um, it turned out to be a, a beep beep Barina, little Barina. I'd saved about. Eight grand, and my dad, he's very blue collar, right? He worked at BHP, and he he would come around. He, he was so embarrassing in, in the car yards. He goes, "Look, here comes this scumbag. I'm not, not going to talk to him." Right? <laughs> and he'd make up stories about so it was a hired car, it was an ex police car. And dad eventually said to me, "Listen, you go and find a car, but you don't buy it. You bring it home first. And I remember driving up the driveway in uh, Mount Warrigal, where I grew up, in a hotted up. Had uh, gold mags, um, lowered BMW, black BMW. I got half up the driveway. Dad said, "Fuck it off." <laughs> it's a rust bucket. <laughs> what did he really think? <laughs> I know. Anyway, I got the breeder, brand new breeder in the end. Oh, please tell me it was the Sports Girl one, the limited edition yeah. beat beat Sports Girl Barina. Look, it still worked, John. <laughs> the, uh, and the funniest one, I think, my second car. I went a bit flash. I can't remember what it was. It was too small for me. It had a sunroof, but it had a had a phone in it. Yeah, how good's oh, this? Wow. Like, how to talk to mum and dad. Yeah. At the time, my girlfriend was still in the country, so coming <laughs> home from training. But probably my funniest car story was my great mate and teammate in Mick Martin. Yep. And Mick Blue Collar, tough. Yep. You know, key defender, played on all the grades of the game. Dennis Pagan, our coach at North Melbourne at the time, we're doing pre-season um, at a Parkfield near North Melbourne, and he rocked up in an old Porsche. Wow. And the coach didn't uh, – didn't mix words. He'd make, uh, you're kidding yourself, Sonny. You're kidding yourself. It's too low to the ground. That's yeah. not you. You will have hamstring issues. <laughs> and lo and behold, he did. Mick had hamstring yeah. issues that year. Wow. But that was, uh, you, you think about the, the, the vehicle you drive and your character, that was, 
that's not Mick. He was he was absolutely kidding himself with his red Porsche. Just I want to quickly talk about your your your, your AFL career. Um, and it's funny how sort of things happen. Uh, as I said, you started at Collingwood. You, you then go to Adelaide uh, and missed the final '97. Yep. You played really well, I think, in the first year '95 when you went there, and then they had a pretty strong team at the time, and you, and you missed the final. You then go to you move to North Melbourne, and you play against in the grand final against the Crows the following year and lose that one. So that must have been how did you feel then? Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> like like I started young at Collingwood, it was great and. It didn't quite submit myself, and the opportunity came to go to Adelaide. So we're really familiar with Adelaide. Like I said earlier, growing up uh, in Neil halfway, I spent a lot of time as a kid over yep. with mum and dad and my brothers in Adelaide on holidays, So, and they'd just come into the competition. So that was great. Like you said, the first two years, um, I was pretty pretty consistent. Uh, 97, Malcolm Blight came in as coach, and Malcolm was a wonderful coach, quite flamboyant. Changed the side around a bit. I only played about six games that year, and uh, obviously that the Crows went on to come from nowhere really to win the, the club's first ever premiership. So great to be involved in it, but obviously not to play is disappointing. <clears throat> Probably knew my time was up then, went to North Melbourne and you know it's interesting when you uh, make the change, come back to Melbourne, playing at North, we're a real strong club. Obviously they'd been playing in prelim finals and grand finals <clears throat> most years over a period of about five or six years and you make a grand final, it's fantastic. But once again, <clears throat> the Crows came from nowhere. And there you are in a grand final, and we dominated the first half. It was, it was unbelievable. We were four goals in front, but it was so inaccurate. We should have yeah. been ten. And the game just the game just turned on its head in the second half, and they they overran us. I think three quarter time they were in front by a point, but it felt like you know that feeling yeah. in, a, in a sporting contest where momentum although the turns. scoreboard's close, the momentum shifted. Yeah. It feels like there's a bigger gap, and, and they went on to beat us. So uh, that. That's the one that really, you know, burns, hurts. F- hurts. I obviously, the next year was about redemption and, and <laughs> North, North had won before I got to the club, won in 96, lost in a prelim 97. So we play with the best side in 98 and we get beaten. In 99, redemption, we weren't the best side um, and we make the grand final. Uh, the problem for me, though, you after got, playing you got everyone... You suspended game, in the prelim, didn't you, against Brisbane? I got suspended, not only in the prelim, it was in the last 10 minutes. Oh, no. <laughs> and I knew uh, it wasn't a suspension. I knew I was gone, um, had a bad record, so that wasn't going to help me. And I missed, <laughs> I got suspended for four weeks. Four weeks didn't matter. It was only one. And, and you said at the time that was the worst moment of your life. Oh, absolutely. You gutted. And probably not, not at the time of the incident, even yep. though I knew I was gone, it was... The next day, because we played Brisbane on a Friday night, the next day Carlton is playing Essendon. Essendon were far and away the best side that year. They were so dominant. Mm. Carlton beat them. Yeah. Carlton beat them by a point. So at 4.45 on that Saturday, that was like the dagger through the heart. Oh. <laughs> I knew then not only was I missing a grand final, I knew I was going to miss out on being a premiership player. We might just take a quick break now. We're here at the beautiful Mosman Bay, nestled right amongst the boats in the water here. And... Um, the food is fantastic. I'm going to have the fish today, the John Dory. It looks fantastic. I think the boys are going to have a steak each. Of course, we'll wash it down with a little O'Brien beer. In life, the most important thing is trust. Without it, everything is a lot harder in a quickly changing and turbulent time. Barclay Pierce Capital is a safe pair of hands, an organisation built on people. They understand you've worked hard to build your nest egg and their asset management business is tailored to suit your needs. 
Their services help grow your wealth in order to provide long-term safety and security for you and your family. BPC, just a phone call away. If you're ready for your next thoroughbred racing adventure, then join the Osher Group. They exceed expectations on what racehorse ownership should look like. Australia's racing industry is enjoying unprecedented growth. Through a strategic, well-managed and data-driven approach, there is now a very real opportunity to build a profitable and sustainable thoroughbred portfolio. Find the Osher Group online at theoshergroup.com. I want to ask you about um, in, in motor racing terms. Um, we talked talk about grand finals in the AFL. And, yep. uh, uh, what do you think in motor racing overall, from Formula One right through to you know, touring cars? What, what do you think is the pinnacle in motor racing in this country right now? Rally, rally, rally okay. Rallying really is the one-shot draft. See, when you're on a race circuit, you can dial that in. Turn yep. one, turn two, turn three. They're all the same turn every lap, right? Yep. So you can do testing and you can refine your technique and get better and better and better. And it's a game of incremental improvements like a tenth of a second here and a tenth of a second there. And all of a sudden, you're not a backmarker. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Whereas rally is just one shot. You get one shot at that bit of road. Mm-hmm. And the winner is the guy who does it, seat of his pants. Like he's, he's got notes and a co-driver calling. That's very him. pure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. So rally's got a huge following in Europe. Not so much here in Australia. It's more of a, a niche following. But the the really interesting thing to me is to, is how many parallels there are because you you two are elite sporting guys, right? You played your thing at an elite level. And what I notice is you've got some schmuck like me mm. who um, I remember once I was doing a story with Possum Bourne, who was a rally yeah. champion. Yep. He, he, he's, Good uh, name. Yeah, he's not with us anymore, sadly. He died doing what he loved. He suffered a profound traumatic brain injury and succumbed to that, sadly. But I did a story with him once at Eastern Creek with these legend uh, STIWRXs and he did hot laps and we timed them and the crux of the story was which was the best one you know and then we had lunch and I went out quietly and uh, I did a couple of hot laps and compared myself to him Mm. right now I'm not a bad driver I'm kind of comfortably in the top one percent of average schmucks you know but I'm not an elite race Mm. driver Mm. I've been in the car with elite race drivers and it's the same as you guys I don't think spectators can appreciate what it's like being on the field at the top of your game, Mm. right? Because even if you're a keen player of AFL or cricket at the weekend, you don't get the difference between just being good and being elite. There's a massive difference. And Mm. I was talking to Mark Weber about that, and he said, look, if we all got right on lawnmowers and went around this track, right, we'd all be the same time. Mm. And then as we go up through our sports girl barinas and our whatever, <laughs> you know, and the performance of the machine increases, yep, yep, yep. there's going to be more of a gap between him and me sort of yeah. thing and between the rest of the mm. field. And then when you get into an F1 car, which is the pinnacle of uh, engineering, if you like, for going fast around a racetrack, then he's there's going to be a huge gap between – him, guys like him, mm-hmm. and ordinary people who are just enthusiasts. And you can never bridge that gap because you guys have got this freaky genetic whatever and then you worked really hard on it mm. and you got to the top of your game and most of us are missing the freaky genetic whatever. So maybe you mentioned Mark Webber. Um, 1997, I got called up to the last Ashes Test Match um, and we got to go to Brands Hatch. Yeah, right. Um, um, and we got to go, I think – Weber was driving Formula 3 then, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, and he 
gave us a hot lap. I've never been more scared in a car in my life. Then we got to drive the touring cars around with a driver yeah. and they gave us a mark. And I remember my mark was, uh, my cornering was excellent. Um, my lines through the, through, the, through the straight were good. My speed was poor. I wasn't going very quick. <laughs> you, well, you know the mistake most people make when they try and go faster in a car or yeah. a racetrack. They go too hard. Yeah. It's like in the Marines where they teach new Marines to use a rifle. They say slow is smooth and smooth yeah. is fast. Yeah. So you can make most people smoother by just telling them to wind it back about 15%. So it was a golf swing. Then, yeah, and then they yeah. just don't overcook it on the way mm. in. And it, it's got to be the same. Like if you were going to coach someone for AFL, yep. right, you'd, you'd see someone trying just a little bit too hard and fluffing it, right? And same kind of thing. Yep, same thing. Just with whether it's uh, Formula One or Rally, the, the, the role or the expertise and the, the skills of the driver – Obviously, early on, there was a gap in some of the, the, the vehicles and what they could do speed-wise. So the role of, at that level, they're all cutting edge. What's the role of the driver? What's the margin in that? Well, I, I'll give you the answer that Mark Webber gave me when I asked him that mm-hmm. as a journal. Right? He, he said, well, my job is to get in that car and drive it at the limit of its performance at every point on the racetrack. There you go. And if I cannot do that, then I'm in the wrong job. Yeah. And you see this all the time. You put people in, I don't know, a mediocre car like a, a Hyundai Getz. Mm. It doesn't get more mediocre than that, no. right? But if you put an <laughs> average driver in a Getz. one of our sponsors on the show. Or a, <laughs> was, there's, there's nothing wrong with those cars, but nobody ever said, oh, my God, you've got a Getz. Can I sit in it? Right? Yeah. So anyway, if you put uh, someone in a car like that, Mazda 2, or something, right? They're not going to be able to drive it at the limit of its performance around a racetrack. They're just not because, you know, you need skills and training and all of that sort of stuff. It's funny you talk about the gets. You, you never hear a um, you never hear a girl say, I'm, I'm sleeping with a banjo player. It's a similar sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, hold it there. We're just going to take a quick break. John O'Brien is a legend of Australia's beer industry. In 2003, he dreamed of producing a great-tasting beer that could be enjoyed by everyone, free from the ill effects of mass-produced wheat and barley. John began a brewing journey blending unique aromas and flavours offered by ancient grains such as sorghum and millet. He perfected recipes over time which have led to 40 local and international awards, including three gold medals at the Australian International Beer Awards, a gold medal at the Indies and a silver medal at the Beer World Cup. Proudly 100% Aussie-owned, made in Ballarat, O'Brien Beer is Australia's most awarded gluten-free beer and widely available around Australia through major retailers and online at rebellionbrewing.com.au. O'Brien Beer, the beer that loves you back. The new Elite Bet app has arrived. It's got all the betting features you expect and new ones you're going to love. Elite Bet is your one-stop shop on race day with Hot Bet, where you can back the tips of proven winning punters. Build fast sports multis and play same game multis. The Elite Bet app is the smoothest betting experience around. Trusted for 10 years, Elite Bet is 100% Australian owned. The only betting app you need this spring is Elite Bet. Gamble responsibly. If you're enjoying this episode, maybe check out a previous one where I spoke to former Swans player Ty Kennelly and Australian cricketer Simon Caddick. We spoke about all things AFL, cricket and life. Hey, Jace, I want to ask you now, um, I mentioned that when you um, you missed the Ruse Premiership Final 99, you said it was the worst day of your life. Wind forward to 2002, you're in Bali, next to the Surrey Club in, in Paddy's Bar, the bomb goes off, takes back, like, and 
don't talk about this if you don't want it, mate. No, 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 I'm, uh, yeah. no, I'm fine. It, um, yeah. It's one of those ones like uh, so extremely unlucky to be in the situation, yep. as many others were. But from the moment that, uh, like you said, we're in Paddy's Bar, Mick Martin, myself, a couple other mates, and um, from the moment that Suicide Bomber did know that blast, I feel unbelievably fortunate. So we, mm. we only arrived that, uh, that afternoon, that evening, we're out for dinner, and we... Right. We were heading to the Sari Club and I, I thought I'd made an executive and wise decision that it was a bit early to go in there because that is uh, pretty chaotic in there and you can't hear a thing. Mm-hmm. So our two, two of the mates were with were from Perth. So we thought we'll cross the road, we'll go to Paddy's Bar, at least we can hear each other, have a Catch couple up. of beers, have a chat. Yep. And we're only there 15 minutes. So when it happened, you reflect back and you feel so guilty, I've done this, I took them there. But then I found out about Sari Club and if we would have been in there, I would, it's fair to say I wouldn't be having this chat with you. So... Yeah, look, uh, we didn't know at the time. We're only five metres from where the suicide bomber was. Had no idea. Um, my recollections are strong. It was, um, I suppose, the force that I've been hit with. You play footy for at the yep. elite level for 12, 13 years and never been hit that hard. So the sheer force of the explosion wow. just knocked, knocked me off my feet. Uh, the the flash of the explosion, uh, your mind's running so quickly, but everything's in slow motion. I thought initially, oh, I've just been shot. I remember this fireball just hitting me. So first thing you think you've been shot. Then I thought there's guys behind me and they're having a whale of a time. They're on a on a rugby end of season trip. Yep. They had the floral shirts, they had the, the ironing board, and they're surfing around and Mick and I were having a giggle about it because we'd just been on an end of season trip with North Melbourne prior to that. We'd been in New Orleans, so we're going, Yeah, we've just had our yeah. fun there. So I'm thinking then straight away, now this is <laughs> this is split second, but I'm thinking all this I'm thinking firecrackers. They've just They've let go, firecrackers. Uh, that's what right. hit. I'm thinking it's hit me, but then obviously what we find out, um, the sound was the other thing too. Perforated eardrums. I've never heard anything like it. So, And then the darkness. So I was, I was, like I said, very fortunate. I was able to pick myself up off the ground, but the panic was the realisation that um, you've been blinded by the flash of the explosion. When your vision returns, you're seeing the, the building on fire, you see people on fire. And then I realised, I looked over my left shoulder and I could see the, the flames up my shirt. And Jesus. It was just desperation, panic stakes to try and get out of there. You, the one thing I did do, which I would guarantee everyone would do in that situation, is you think about your mates. Mm. Now, I reached out, I thought it was Mick um, who was next to me. It happened to be a girl in a group behind us who we, we knew a group of those girls from Melbourne and... I don't think it mattered if that was your worst enemy. You're going to try and help. And, and we were aiding each other to try and get a distance of about probably 20 metres to get out of the building. But um, we got two-thirds of the way. Again, I thought it was just my clumsiness that we tripped over. But what we didn't know, because of the perforated eardrums, we couldn't hear up the road out the front of the Sari Club was the second explosion, which was the car bomb. Uh-huh. So they put a suicide bomber in where we are, Paddy's, cause as much devastation as possible, flush everyone on the street. And then the car Sorry bomb Sorry, club's in. full car bomb. So that's what, that's what knocked us off our feet. So, so so. At, and at that time, as you said, you, you started, the reason you got the order for Australia Medal, but um, helping other people, you didn't realise you had 50% second degree burns to 50% of your body, did you? Nah, no idea. No idea. Like I'm out the front and it's all happening quickly again and I'm alone. I'm looking at the building that's just ablaze and tumbling down and all I can think about is Mick, my great mate Peter Hughes from Perth and his mate Gary Nash. I only, only met him 45 yeah. minutes ago and I'm thinking, I'm never going to see him again. And then Mick, Mick just emerged through the smoke and rubble and it's so random. I think we hear it a lot about floods or bushfires. We hear the stories of a town's been devastated or the mm. streets been – and then there's one house still standing. 
that was like the people I've met after it, there's groups there that unfortunately people lost uh, their lives or people are seriously injured. And then someone's there that's got minimal injuries and they're standing right next to them. And that was Mick. Uh, thankfully for Mick, he, he had some minor burn injuries, but he was able to take control and he, mm. he dragged me up the road. He, he th- couldn't get any transport. He threw me on the back of a motorbike, uh, on the back of a moped and we were staying at the Hard Rock Hotel in Cooter at the time. And just he, he just directed the guy back there. He jumped on a bike behind me and, you know, those all the hotels there, you get a doctor on duty and I was assessed quickly and ended up in the local hospital, which was, um, they did an amazing job there, but uh, it was it the is. local hospital, not one of these private wow. hospitals. <laughs> so so what, it wasn't, I was doing my research, it wasn't, I thought you were flying back to Australia in the hospital here, because was it the hospital there you almost died or was it no, in Australia? I had, I had uh, pretty much like everyone else, I spent, the, had some operations in Bali and yep. they were amazing what they could do and they couldn't do much, remove burnt tissue the biggest issue we all had was the the wounds from the shrapnel like mm. the, the makeup of the backpack and the blast and then you're in a bar so it's a uh, glass, you know, glass and metal fuck. and so shrapnel wounds so get as much of that out but the, the infection is a massive issue with burn mm. injuries which i had no idea at the time and that that hospital let's face it they did an amazing job but they can't cater for that like no. we've got amazing medical facilities here but the, the number of patients if it comes through something here would be would be under a distress so Quick operations, but they didn't have enough dressing to cover and dress your wounds, so lay open and exposed to the infection. So I got flown out. Evacuation was put in place. The government swung into action. I ended up flying back via Darwin, where I had about half a day, and that would have been Monday. So I arrived back in Melbourne at the Alfred Hospital Tuesday. Didn't matter where you lived. It was where can we get – who can take on all these patients? So – Regardless of your um, your address, it was, you know, once again, I feel fortunate. I was in Melbourne at the time. That's where um, my wife, my fiance at the time and family and support network. So that's when I get back to the Alfred, multiple operations, skin grafts. And then within 24 hours, it's a bit of a struggle to breathe and wow. induce coma. And Yeah, but I thought, I'll be honest. Yeah. I didn't know how bad I was and I f- felt and thought there was others worse. The room I was in in the hospital in Bali, it was I wasn't out in the open for some room. I was in a little office area, and there was people in there that I now know unfortunately didn't make it. And it, to get then get back, and then I think I come at the Alfred, one of the world's leading trauma hospitals. Mm. I'll get the very best care, which I did, but I thought I was like oh, I'd be okay then. Yep. But that with burn injuries, that 24, 48 hours later, you. The, That's when it's a really the swelling, the yeah. burning, the deepness of the burns, and um, the stress on the internal organs. That's when everything was starting to shut down. So, one thing I would say is, it was bad, as bad as it sounds. Mm. I'm, I'm actually in no pain when I'm in that induced coma. The medication, the drugs take over. I can never ever begin to think about how difficult that would have been. Uh, my wife, Narissa, uh, my parents, my brothers, and obviously her family, because that's when there was great uncertainty. So, yeah. Now, as a father, you you think, geez, how difficult would that have been for them? And you got back and you married Narissa 63 days later. Yeah, yeah. We um, we were told, uh, oh, I was told, that need to postpone the wedding. You'd be in hospital for eight or ten weeks. Yep. And then football would be out of the question at the elite level because of the extent of the injuries. But um, oh, that, I think to being an elite athlete, you're very regimented, you're goal-orientated, so it was like, well, that's that's okay, but mm. I've got another plan in place here, and it, yeah, we, it was hard work, but we got there in the end, it certainly um, didn't want to change anything there, and we made it through, it was an amazing day, 
um, it was just great to have that support of yeah, people that played a really important role in our upbringing as kids, but they were the same people that provided my wife with all that support throughout, so it was great. I'm glad you're here, mate. John, I want to talk about um, talk about the impact. You talked about the force of that bomb going off. Dude, reading up on, on Formula One back in the 60s and 70s, it felt like someone was dying in those bullets every, every, every second week. What, what, why, are they, why are there less deaths now in Formula One? Is, it, is the technology that good? I think one of the big advances is civil engineering. The tracks right. are safer, right? Because the grim reality about impact in cars generally is that if you crash and it's into an immovable object at about 80 k's an hour, mm-hmm. you'll be dead. Yep. And to your point about the the number of people it affects, yeah. you're in an induced coma, your problems yeah. are over at least temporarily, yeah. right? Yep. But the knock-on effect of this stuff. So road trauma is a big deal, you know, in Australia. And... It's the other people that it affects. It's it's dozens of people. It's the people who pick up the tab and it's your family and all of that stuff. But one of the things that doesn't get enough credit in racing and out on the road is civil engineering saves lives, like those wire rope barriers yeah. on the freeway. They stop you stopping quickly in a crash, yeah. right? And, and when you look at what killed Princess Di, there was a column in the tunnel that went straight to the floor and the car stopped incredibly rapidly and it was unsurvivable, yep. right? So. When you, when you look at the civil engineering improvements that are made all around right. us, including in racing, the thing you've got to do is not stop quickly when you lose control yep. of the car. If you can stop gently, then you, you, know, you get out and you fill in the toe papers and go, oh, wasn't I a bit of a goose? Mm. You know? But the trauma people, like the, the paramedics who attend incidents at the roadside and the doctors who pick up the pieces inside trauma departments, they're really good as well and there have been major advances there. But the fundamental thing that saves lives in racing is better track design. The car right. just spins forever, it goes into the sand and mm. the driver gets out and goes, oops-a-daisy. It's quite topical. It was only, I think, last week here in Mossman, five teenage kids, a girl driving without a licence, yep. massive smash up here in Crow's Nest. They were doing 150 kilometres an hour in Crow's Nest. And uh, fortunately, they all survive, but that could be a very different story. Well, yeah, there's there's terrible tragedies like that that play out all the time, and it's a it's a social problem, right? Like mm. you sh- you shouldn't <laughs> you shouldn't be 16 and get behind the wheel of a car without a license, and if the cops light up their sirens, you should stop because I'd stop. Yeah, you know, and it's really hard to put 35 year old heads on 16 year old yep. kids. It yep, just is. It is. Hey, Jason, I want to ask you. I want to ask you a question now. I'm pretty sure you've never been asked this question. Now, my my in-laws are from Melbourne. Um, my mother-in-law, um, Denise, she is a mad um, cat supporter. But the rest of the family, my father-in-law George, brother Mark, Tanya, all North Melbourne supporters. Love North Melbourne, mate. So you're a big hero in their family. But apparently, just after you retired, you were with North Melbourne. You're in Canberra at a petting zoo <laughs> and you're on your way to speaking. My mother-in-law just met you and my father-in-law just met you and apparently you're holding a snake and a snake bit you on the face. And my mother-in-law, what Denise wants to know, how did the speaking gig go after that? <laughs> do you remember that? I do remember it. <laughs> I do remember it. Um, yeah. A few, weird thing, luck, a few weird things happened to me. Like, who has that happened on holidays? And then, so I was, I, I was still doing some work. Uh, North were playing the next day. I was doing some corporate gigs for North. It was a cocktail function at the zoo. Had a speaking gig that night, and I was doing the, the game the next day for Channel 9. I hate snakes. <laughs> I have always hated snakes. But I thought, here's an opportunity. Going around, people at the snake, the python, around the shoulders. I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. 
and I was shitting myself. Close your eyes, I'm waiting. Okay, I'll overcome this, I'll overcome Can't feel the snake. So I had my eyes, and the handler got a bit cocky, and it's like, it's all right, you know, he's a bit scared, he won't bite you. And when he said that, this python struck me on the face. Now, it's, it is <laughs> bloody funny now. I'm so grateful it didn't give me the eye, but yeah. it... it <laughs> Imagine, oh, we all know, biting into the juiciest Granny Smith apple when you bite in the crunch. Well, that was the bloody crunch <laughs> oh, on my face. <laughs> and everyone was in shock because it happened so quickly. And then the bastard had to go up my hip. So I, was, <laughs> I struggled to do my presentation that night. because I'll, 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 I'll let Denise today. I'm <laughs> talking about the, what happened in Bali, but all I could see is bloody snake <laughs> just striking me. So, How do you feel about snakes now? Uh, nothing's changed. Really? No, the best Knock me snakes, down with a feather. The best snakes, I believe, are dead yep. snakes. <laughs> and, and so speaking of snakes, John, you've been married five times, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> My good segue into that one. <laughs> I like that. I might use that. The uh my character on YouTube yep. is a guy, he's a wafer of my personality, right? And okay. he he doesn't understand the need for filtration between what you really think and what you say, which is kind of critical in most broadcast environments, yes. right? You've got to filter it, keep the sponsors happy, yeah. not drop the F-bomb too yep. often and all of that sort of <laughs> stuff, okay? So my character is a wafer of me and if he was me, he would have five ex-wives, right? <laughs> okay. So I've got one ex-wife <laughs> okay. and that was more than enough. <laughs> It's the gift that keeps on giving for years and years. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of men can relate to that. You know, she, she bit you on the face once and that was it. Well, yeah, and the, and the handler said, no, 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 it'll be okay. No, 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 it's going to be okay. And then the pocket got yeah. bitten. That's right. <laughs> no, it happens. Um, I want to, um, Jason, I want to ask you about now um, your return to football. Um, June 6, 2003, you returned to AFL versus Richmond. Um, North Melbourne actually won that match. I think it was... Uh, it, went by, it was a pretty low-scoring match from memory. But won I won like two or three points, I think. Yeah. Um, and then you had to wear gloves because your injuries had – you wore sleeves. And you wore – what numbers did you wear on your jersey again? You wore – Yeah, just on the on the, uh, what on the left or right-hand side. I had just uh, – in the AFL, I had to provide permission. I had the 88-202. Yep. And the 88 was representation, of, unfortunately, the 88 Australians that lost their life. Wow. And then, obviously, 202 mm. um, people in total. So – the AFL kindly granted uh, permission for that, yeah. Look, I had to wear these pressure garments, I think I wore them for about 12 months to help with the healing process and just try and eliminate this, what they call a thickening or keloid scarring. Yep. And my hands had been a mess and these pressure garments were quite mm. quite slippery, so I had the footy gloves um, over them. So um, I, I do remember in the warm-up, I've worn these gloves for a while. I've been playing in the VFL, like the reserve grade, for probably eight or nine weeks leading mm-hmm. in, 10 weeks. And uh, I tried new ones on in the warm-up. Unbelievably grippy. So how good is this for yeah. marking? But I usually play back. I knew, starting on the bench, I knew I'd end up playing forward. And I thought, if I do happen to grab a couple, the problem is you got to kick. Yeah, you can't get off your hands. too well. So I went, uh, I went with the older gloves. And, um, yeah, it was remarkable how that turned out. Because I only, only spoke to – when I found out I was playing on the Monday, I let the, the coach and the footy manager see, I know, on Tuesday that – That'd be it. <clears throat> that, that wasn't the plan, but in the end, I just knew I couldn't keep going. So when I got back, I wanted to let them know. We had a team meeting on Friday after training. I then told the leaders. So there was, I was in the leadership group. So we had a meeting. I spoke to the other eight, seven, seven or eight guys and said, 
whatever happens tonight, this will be my last game. And um, the rest of the team didn't know. So it, it was an absolute fairy tale how it turned out. I didn't play very well early, but um, I was lucky to be on the ground the last quarter. But kicked a goal early in the last and had a hand in the, the last one that um, ultimately got us across the line. And I read that um, at the time was just it was the almost the, the amount of mental um, capacity you needed just to get back to playing again, and and that took a toll on you. And you went, I'll, I'll play that one game, and that's enough for me. Yeah, I wanted to get back and continue my career. That was a plan, but it just yep. I, probably was a realization mental, mentally and physically. I still had a long, long way to go. More so physically, the burn injuries. It was going to take probably a couple of years. So. Mm. I fast-tracked everything. I got to a good space. I, was, I become really frustrated too. I was playing some good footy in the VFL and you don't get selected. But I understand yep. how hard it was for the club at the time. And um, ultimately, we got there. And, and once – it was probably a decision I made and talked to Narissa about four weeks before ultimately I got selected. That's when I knew it, would, it wouldn't be a continuation of the career. It would just be the one game. So, yeah, it was – we're you know, after everything had happened and how bad it had been, to, to finish the way it did was uh, quite remarkable. And that is a fantastic painting by Jamie Cooper's of you getting carried off on the shoulders of the boys. That's that's uh that's one of the one of the great sporting it's bits a, of bit of artwork. It I think. is a great photo hanging up in yeah. my study. It was yeah. yeah, remarkable painting that one. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. I ask everyone the same question that comes on the show. I'll ask you first, John. Um, a young boy or girl wants to go into journalism or into the world of motor racing. What advice would you give them? Journalism's evolving, right? I think there's a great deal of mistrust of established media organisations mm-hmm. because you can never figure out what the journos and what the host of a news bulletin actually think about anything, right? Mm-hmm. They, they present stories in this sort of old-timey way. So if you wanted to be a journalist today and you were uh, a young man or woman, I'd suggest you're better off being an independent journalist than starting your own thing on YouTube, whatever it is. If you want to talk about sport or finance or business or culture or art, whatever, just do it yourself because the barrier to entry has never been lower. Like you don't need Mm. a broadcast licence and you don't need to spend a quarter of a million dollars on camera gear and stuff like that. You can shoot it on your phone and post it for free to YouTube. So start now would be my advice to journos. If you want to get involved in motor racing – Need then, a lot of money. Well, yeah, it's an expensive sport, but you can do you can certainly do track days at places like Eastern Creek and okay. other local. Yep. You know, and you can it, the one thing I'd suggest is that the ambient standard of driving competency in Australia is crap, and we have okay. this we have this unique sort of blend around the world. We we are unique in in terms of ambient incompetence and aggression. It's an aggressive, incompetent environment, and if you get proper training, you'll just be better at it. And the number of uh, times that it might save your life or someone else's life is really going to surprise you over the course of your life, you know, and, and it's not like Hollywood. It, much in, I imagine, the same way that being blown up is not like it is in Hollywood, you know. The the real things that save lives out on the road, if you want to be a good driver, is you can look further ahead, you can plan further ahead and you can react earlier because speed, distance and time are all related. If you see something further down there and you react quicker, then 
some kid gets to go home when otherwise they might not have. And that's to me, that's the that's the beauty of learning about car control and maybe getting involved in racing. Or you can just go and do go-kart stuff, you yep. know, like go-karts are cheap and I can't imagine a more pure driving experience than a go-kart. Before you talk about incompetence, that reminds me of um, one of my best mates, a guy called Chris Muldoon, who I lived with for about eight years. He... Um, I used to say that he, he was five foot four, Chris, and I said he suffered from a bad combination of overconfidence and incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> they do go together. Yeah, yeah they, they do. Yeah. Um, Jace, uh, final question for you. Um, bit of advice. A young boy or girl wants to go into footy, pay AFL. What advice would you give them? Uh, I think it's developing a real strong work ethic, uh, being, being open-minded, taking on advice, and then be yourself. Mm. Uh, it's, it's great to have role models, but uh, everyone is different, and it's about – taking on the information, getting to work, but be the best version of yourself. Yeah, great advice. Well, I thank you both for coming on Lunch with Lee. We're here at Mossman Rowers. Um, we're going to have a nice lunch now. Sit down and uh, we'll have a few O'Brien beers, but I want to thank you both for coming on the show. Jason, in particular, I want to say, mate, um, you are a true Australian story of, of resilience and what it means to be an Aussie, and uh, I'm glad to meet you and be here today. And, and John, really refreshing, mate. Go and check you out at... Uh, autoexpert.com.au Nice to talk to you, Shane. Thanks, Thanks Shane. Cheers. Wonderful. That's it for Lunch with Lee this week. A big thank you goes out to our guests, Jason McCartney and John Cadogan. Thanks to our sponsors, Barclay Pierce Capital, Elite Bet and O'Brien Beer. And also a big thank you to Mossman Rowers for amazing lunch on the water here in Mossman Bay. Make sure you hit follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. And do us a favour, hit five stars. And if you're there and you're passionate, please leave a review. And come check us out on Instagram, I'm at Lunch with Lee. Our official lunch relief photography was done by Felicity Kelly. You can find her on Instagram at Felicity Kelly Portraits. And once again, a big thanks to our producer, Dan McHugh. We'll be back soon with some more legends to talk about sport, music and business on another episode of Lunch with Lee. We'll see you then.